I'm thankful to be here, and, and I'm thankful to continue the study in James. I hope everybody's enjoying the study. We're going to try to finish up the first chapter tonight, and we're getting through it piece by piece. And I, I hope everybody's learning a little something. I want to go over verses 26 and 27 of the first chapter today in James and finish the chapter out. However, before we do so, I'd like to go back to verses 22 through 25 that we covered last week to get the context again. So if you have your Bibles, turn to turn to James chapter 1. We'll start in verse 22. James chapter 1 and verse 22, it starts here and it says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking at his own face in the mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and right away forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts. This person will be blessed in what he does. Now throughout this epistle so far that James is writing to the believers who have been scattered abroad, he's been showing them how to test themselves and to see if their way is real, if they have true saving faith, or just some self-proclaimed salvation. He has given several tests so far throughout chapter 1. We had the test of the trials, where we learned to endure them with joy. We had the test of temptations, where we learned that no man is tempted by Yahweh, but only as we go after our own lustful desires. And then we had the test of how we receive the word, where we learned to be swift to hear, slow to speak the word until we have the proper understanding, and slow to anger or rebel against the word. And then last time I taught, we went over the test of how to apply the word where we learn how to be a doer of it, not a hearer only, deceiving our own self. And in, and in last week's message, James uses an analogy of what it's like when a man looks into, an, into a mirror and sees himself, his, looks at his natural face, sees, in, sees it blemished, and walks away unchanged. He uses that as an example to describe the man that looks into the law and rejects what it shows to him. Kind of like what we were just talking about in testimony service. If it shows him his sin or shows him the more that more is required in his spiritual walk, then this man must tighten up. But far too often, we look into the law of freedom and we don't care what it has to offer or we don't like the image that we see. When we look into the law, we don't like what we see, what our face looks like, or what, what it reveals about our life. And out of selfish desires and lust for worldly things, we continue on in sin and walk away unchanged after we've looked. This is sad, but it's common throughout all of Christianity today, and it was common in James' day also. Hence the reason James uses it as a, as a test in an epistle. See, so many of us today, including myself, look at the scriptures and see where Yahweh points out flaws. Then we just look over that part and we read on to something else. We don't take it to heart what Yahweh says. We don't believe what he says. We don't want to be confronted with our sin or be shown where we err in our walk. But James says that that that's what we should do. We should look at the law. We should see where we're wrong and we should change our ways. He goes on to say that the man who looks into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and he's not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts, this person will be blessed in what he does. See, the blessings aren't for the person who just has the mirror, but rather for the person who sees and does something about it. 
You can go to Lifeway Christian Bookstore and buy a Bible for $10. You can tote it around. You can never crack the pages. You can bring it to church with you, lay it on the pew beside you. Heck, you can even sleep with it, lay your head on it at night. And that Bible is useless if it's never looked into. The mirror, is, the mirror is useless if it's never looked into. If you never crack the words or the pages of the Bible and read the words that are in it, it's useless. Then there's some who will read the Bible and they'll actually look into the mirror. They'll see that Yahweh says that, that He commands us to do certain things, a way, to, a way that we're supposed to act, how we're supposed to be a set-apart people. They will actually see their sin, recognize their flaw, and they still won't change. Even though they know that they're wrong, they still won't do anything about it. They might even say, I don't care what it says. I'm not going to do it. That's dumb. This person is a forgetful hearer only. They see what's wrong. They just don't do anything about it. And there's some, there are some, there are a select few that will do this. They'll say, I want to see my flaws. I want to know where I'm wrong. I want to change and be be more like my Savior. Yahweh, please show me the errors of my ways. Help me to understand the commands you've given me and help me to walk in them so I might be blessed. Because that's what the, that's what the one who acts gets. He gets the blessings. That's what Yahweh bestows upon him. This person is an effectual doer of the word. See, the man that just looked into the mirror of the perfect law wasn't blessed. It was the man who actually acted that was blessed. The hearer only comes, hears the word, walks away and forgets. There's no change. The true believer comes, hears the word, and his life has changed before he even leaves. This is the mark of true saving faith. One that hears the word and is a doer of it. When you ride down the road and you see a speed limit sign, do you immediately check your, your speedometer to see if you're speeding? If you do and you are speeding, do you hit your brakes to get the car back within the parameters that you should be in? If so, then the traffic law is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. That traffic sign is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to remind you of the speed that you're supposed to be traveling at. You recognize the speed. You should immediately look at your speedometer. Speed limit sign says 55. I'm going 58. I need to tap the brakes a little bit and get back down to 55 miles an hour. Now, I may be a little bit crass right here. I'm not trying to be. I know everybody don't drive 55. But to keep it within the parameters, that's the idea anyway. That's what the sign is there for. If you if you are driving down the road and you see that sign and you don't even look down at your speedometer or check your speed or care what it says, you might be the man that never even opens his Bible. It's just it's kind of the same thing. Or if you're driving down the road and you see the sign and it says 55 and you look down at your your speed limit, I mean at your speedometer and you're doing 65 and you look around and you say, well, there's no cops. Just keep traveling at the same speed. Well, you're the man that reads it, hears it, and don't do anything about it. The man that looks at the Bible and the way that that man looks at the speedometer, he's the one that doesn't, that doesn't act. He hears the word. He sees the law. He recognizes that he's doing something wrong, but yet he doesn't, he doesn't do anything about it. See, Yahweh's laws are a lot the same way. If we daily check ourselves with Yahweh's laws, we'll find, out, we'll find ourselves speeding, and the righteous man will govern his speed and get back into line with Yahweh. But the unrighteous man, number one, he doesn't even notice the law. And number two, if he does notice the law, the unrighteous man doesn't even care. He just says, well, 
police aren't looking or Yahweh's not looking. I can keep on doing what I'm doing. The doer of the word is the righteous. The doer of the word is righteous and receives the blessings, but the hearer only is deceived. Now, with that context in mind, let's move into verse 26. I, want, I know we covered that last week, but I wanted to go back over and give you some context going into verse 26. Instead of it's kind of the end of the chapter, and I don't want to jump into it without that. Verse 26, we'll read it. It says, If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, but deceiving his heart, his religion is useless. Notice James says, think, he thinks here in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious. That implies that this is a matter of selfish assumption, that one considers himself religious. Maybe one of us in here might consider ourselves religious, at least in our own opinion or by our own opinion. The word religious here is the Greek word threskos. It means to it means to be uh, ceremonious in worship, or to have some kind of piousness about your religion. It is uh, it is referring to outward religious acts. One might say showy, I guess, in the context that we're using. You might you might be showing your religion. Someone who goes through all the right emotions, appears in church with a Bible, participates in all activity, bows their head when the preacher's praying, praying, etc., etc., things like that. Showy religion, outward religion. James is saying if you think you're so religious in doing all these showy things, if you do all that is required physically but you haven't bridled your tongue, then your heart is deceived and your religion is useless. The outward religion doesn't benefit you at all. What, what people see doesn't mean a hill of beans to Yahweh. James is echoing the words of his older brother here in Matthew 23, and verse 27 and 28. Yeshua says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. In the same way on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, no matter what someone tries to do to fool the surrounding spectators, unless his inward man is changed, his mouth will give him away. Remember, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34. That's why James is using the tongue here, because your lips will reveal what's in your heart. James writes almost an entire chapter about the tongue in chapter 3 of his epistle which we'll get to in depth in a later date, but I urge you to go ahead and read it. If you've got time to read at home, and you should, go ahead and read chapter 3. Um, get an idea of just how dangerous that tongue is. Go ahead and read it for yourself. He says in chapter 3 that the tongue is a small part of the body, but it boasts great things. It's like a rudder on a ship or a small flame in a forest. It's a world of unrighteousness, and it pollutes the whole body. It sets the course of life on fire, and it's driven by a fire from hell. See, the tongue exposes the heart, and unless our heart is changed, our tongue is a wicked thing. In Jeremiah in chapter 17 and verse 9, <clears throat> Jeremiah says, the, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The tongue brings to life all the hatred things of the wicked heart. It airs out all the heart's dirty laundry, so to speak. James says our tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. For with it we bless Yahweh, and at the same time we curse man made in his own image. Then he goes on to say these things shouldn't be. Bitter and sweet water don't come from the same source. They don't come from the same well. Our tongue is very powerful. We can go around 
pretending to be religious, doing all the religious acts, but our tongue will give us away. It will always tell on us. A tongue that boasts about its own works and religious acts, or a tongue that speaks ill of others, or a tongue that speaks of that of things that dishonor Yahweh, that tongue belongs to a heart that is far from Yahweh. So back in verse 26, in, in, in verse 26 in chapter 1, James is saying, if you think you're religious, examine your tongue. This is another test. Examine your tongue, and if your tongue's found guilty, consider your religion useless. The man who has, has a slandering tongue cannot have the humble, gracious heart of Yahweh. It doesn't work. One, one contradicts the other. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before our mighty one and father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I want to read it again. Listen to the words. Pure and undefiled religion before our mighty one and father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James gives an example of pure and undefiled religion. He says that it's to look after the orphans and the widows and to be unstained by the world. But remember what he said right before that in verse 26. He says if anyone thinks he's religious, in verse 27 he says pure and undefiled religion is this. Someone might think they're religious, like we covered just a second ago, just by showing showy things, or hey, they come to church, or hang out with church, churchy people, stuff like that. But James says, if you want to know what pure, undefiled religion is, if you want to know what real religion is, number one, you can you, you ask Yahweh what pure and undefiled religion is. That's, that's where we get our answer at. And number two, this is what it is. He's comparing pure religion with the religion of one who thinks he is religious. He says pure religion is undefiled, and the definition of pure or undefiled is given by Yahweh. It's not defined by what man thinks, but rather what Yahweh approves as pure and undefiled. See, all the good deeds you can do won't make you pure before Yahweh. He declares what's holy and righteous. How many times have you heard somebody say, so-and-so's a good man? Speaking of someone with worldly morals. We should ask, he's a good man, and whose eyes? According to whose standards? Is he a good man according to man's standards? Or is he a good man according to Yahweh's standards? James says pure religion is examined by Yahweh, and it is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep ourselves unstained by the world. See, Yahweh loves the orphans and the widows. And we're supposed to be like Yahweh. We should love the orphans and the widows also. If you want to, turn with me to... Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 17, it says, Do not deny justice to a foreign resident or fatherless child, and do not take a widow's garment as security. Remember that you, have a, you were a slave in Egypt, and Yahweh your mighty one redeemed you from there. Therefore I am commanding you to do this. When you reap the harvest in your field, and you forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back to get it. It is to be left for the foreign resident, resident, the fatherless, and the widow, so that Yahweh, your mighty one, may bless you in all the works of your hands. When you knock down the fruit from your olive tree, you must not go over, go over the branches again. What remains will be for the foreign resident, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you must not glean what is left. What remains will be for the foreign resident, the fatherless, 
and the widow. Remember what you remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this. Turn a couple pages to Deuteronomy chapter 27 and look at verse 19. It says, Cursed is the one who denies justice to a foreign resident, a fatherless child, or a widow. And all the people will say, Amen. In Psalm 68, verse 5, David says, A father of the fatherless and a champion of widows is the Almighty in his holy dwelling. Some translations say a defender of the widows is Yahweh. This is a beautiful example of who Yahweh favors. It's always the needy, the weak, the humble, the ones who cry out for help. James says if you're religious, look after these people. That's what Yahweh commands you to do. David says that he's their champion. You want to be somebody's champion? Be the champion of the fatherless, the widows, the needy. If you want to be a hero, you want to to be some great spiritual man, check and see if your ministry is the ministry of Yahweh's. He looks after the souls of the afflicted, the hungry, and the poor, and he squashes anybody who does them harm. That's what Yahweh does. He always pulls for the young, for the underdog. He don't like the mighty people. He likes the weak because he is mighty. They don't have to be mighty when Yahweh's mighty. Look at, uh, I'm going to read something to you. You don't have to turn there, but uh, Exodus chapter 22, 22 through 24, this is another place where Yahweh says he'll kill you with the sword. He says this, you don't have, he says, you must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry out to me, and I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows, and your children will be fatherless. Pick on my fatherless children, and I'll kill you, and your children will be fatherless. Those are powerful words. I believe Yahweh's serious when he commands us to take care of the widows. He's not playing around. James tells us that pure and undefiled religion is to do this. Why? It's the greatest, it's the second greatest commandment, or the greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Taking care of widows and orphans is a prime example of love for your neighbor. Where there's true religion that begins in the heart, there is love to Yahweh. And where there is love to Yahweh, there is love to, to his saints, his widows, and his orphans. In John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, it says this. It says, Love one another, for love is from Yahweh, and everyone who loves has been born of Yahweh and knows Yahweh. The one who does not love does not know Yahweh because Yahweh is love. Brothers and sisters, a redeemed heart reaches out to others. If we don't desire to help others, that's an indication that we don't have true saving faith. In the second part of verse 27, back in the epistle of James, chapter 1, in verse 27, the second part says this, Keep oneself unstained by the world. What does that mean? Does it mean that we don't participate in the world at all? No, I don't think so. It doesn't mean we can't walk down city streets or go to a public restaurant or even support some worldly event. That's not the intention of James's message right here. I think James is saying that you can't let worldly things interrupt your spiritual life. The lifestyle of the world and its morality, or, or lack of morality, I guess, I should, should say, is what we should abstain from. That's what we shouldn't be stained by. We have to keep our eyes focused on heavenly things and on the word of Yahweh and not on the pleasures and the moralities of man. 
Let's not be affected by the world in the sense of falling into sin and falling away from Yahweh's task as he set us set us set for us to do. Look at uh first John chapter two, verses fifteen through seventeen. I'll read it to you. It says first John chapter two, verse fifteen, it says, Do not love the world or the things that belong that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does Yahweh's will will remain forever. He says not to love the world or the things that belong to it. It tells us that what belongs to the world, I think in verse in verse 16, it tells us what belongs to the world. It says this, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle, that's what belongs to the world. So if we're not supposed to be stained by the world, we don't need to participate in these things. These are the things that are not from the Father, and this is what James is saying to be not to be stained by back in James 1.27. The word unstained, or the word stained in the Greek is aspalos, and it means to be unblemished, or to be blemished, or unblemished, or without spot. That's what it means. It, it's the same Greek word that's used in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14. Peter uses it this way. He says, Dear friends, while you wait for these things, he's talking about the second coming of Christ, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish before him. That phrase, without spot or blemish, is taken from the same Greek word, aspalos, that's used in James chapter 1 and verse 27. So contextually, Peter's saying the same thing here. He's saying, keep your way pure while we wait on his promises to be fulfilled. Another good example of being unstained by the world is found in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25. I think everybody in here is probably familiar with the with the parables of the of the ten virgins, but five were wise and five were foolish. They all go to the wedding banquet. Five have oil with them, and so they can stay and wait for the bridegroom to come. Five don't have any oil. They run out of oil. They must leave. The bridegroom comes, and they miss the wedding banquet. We should be like the five wise, always ready, concentrated on Yahweh's word and the work that he has in, in our life for us to do and not be pulled away by worldly desires or worldly things. We should we should love what Yahweh has for us to do. However, don't confuse being un, unstained by the world with being in the world. We're supposed to be in the world. We're supposed to be a city set on a hill. Believers are called the light of the world. And just as a lighthouse is built on the edge of a rocky cliff on, the, on a bay, it's set there to guide men to keep them from hitting, hitting rocks or, or, or the cliff edges or whatever. That's what a lighthouse is built for, is to guide men into a harbor. That's what our job is. We're supposed to do the same thing. We're, we're supposed to be lights unto the world, and we're supposed to guide men, and, and, and Yahweh's supposed to be glorified by our very actions. Because of the good works we do, Yahweh should be glorified, not because of the good works we boast about or the religion that we falsely claim, but rather the good works that we possess. That's what's supposed to guide men. That's, that's what makes us a bright city. As we wrap up the first chapter, I'd like to say this. I know myself, that I, as I have evaluated myself with these tests that James has given us in this first chapter, 
it's been hard to swallow some of the correction that's come. For me, I didn't want to swallow some of it. Today, I cried the whole time I was writing this sermon. I don't know that I've ever visited a widow. I don't know that I've ever done that. I don't know that I've ever brought food to an orphan or uh, done anything for them. I don't know that I've ever done that. But Yahweh says this, or James says, that's pure and holy living. You want to be righteous? Don't talk about how righteous you are. Show me how righteous you are. You take care of the orphans. You take care of the widows. That's righteous. You'll be righteous before Yahweh. Compare yourself to Yahweh's standard, not whether or not man thinks you're righteous or not, because anybody can walk in church and put on a clean suit and look all fancy. I show up almost every service. You know, I, I might have missed four or five services in five years. Does that make me righteous? No, not hardly. Not hardly. It doesn't mean anything. Absolutely doesn't mean anything. <clears throat> but anyway, I've looked at myself throughout the last last few weeks of, and, and checked myself and, and run myself through these tests. And sadly to say, I probably failed most of them. Most of them. I don't want to be a failure, but I am. I am. Am I truly saved? I don't know. It's a question I need to ask myself. And everybody in here needs to be honest and ask their self. You know, that's the whole idea of the epistle of James is to question ourselves and see whether or not we're we're true. We're real. Do we really have saving faith? That's the idea. But keep in mind, there is no righteous man on earth. There's not one that does good and it's not. And it's not our perfection that proves our salvation but rather the action to our imperfection that proves our salvation. James offers us a series of tests that we don't have to be, so we don't have to be in the dark about whether or not we're, we're truly born again or not. Let's not be fooled into thinking we're sinless. It's not the case. Let's evaluate ourselves. Look into the mirror of the, law, the perfect law of liberty. Let's see our sins. Let's repent of them and change our ways. And let's fall at the foot of a blood-stained tree and beg Yahweh for the forgiveness and the guidance and the holiness. Let's not put on an outward religion for show while our tongue proves what's in our heart is otherwise. Remember 1 John 3.18, Do not love with word or speech, but with truth and deed or action. Let's practice pure and undefiled religion by loving one another as we have been loved. Yahweh loved us so much that He gave His only begotten Son for the penalty of our sins. We have to love like that. Yeshua lived a life unstained by the world. And by His example, we're to live the same. We have to love like He did, and we have to live like He did. Praise Yahweh for His words. Praise Yahweh for James and his test. I'm thankful for him. All right, let's close. Word of prayer. Yahweh, Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your very many blessings. And thank You for the test that You put in our life, Father. How would we examine ourselves if you've not given us the mirror to look into? Father, I just pray that when we look into this mirror, this perfect mirror that you've given, and we, we see where we're flawed, Father, give us the, give us the humility to, to fall broken in front of you and beg for your forgiveness. And then give us the strength to, to carry on, to get back up and try again to be what you would have us to be. Y'all, we love you. We're so very thankful for you. We're thankful most, for all, most of all for your son. And all that he's done on our on our account. Father, we love you and we ask all this in his holy name. Amen.